Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's do it. Rational fear contains strong, coarse language and traces of nuts. Radio National recommends listening by an immature audience. Tonight, Kanye West had his first baby, but it was pretty much just a copy of a better baby Jay-Z had a year ago. And Melissa Doyle from Channel 7 Sunrise Program leaves the show to do something more challenging, actually watching the Sunrise Program. And Rupert Murdoch files for divorce, coincidentally just in time for the casting of Channel 10's The Bachelor. And we interview three-time world burlesque queen Imogen Kelly. And despite the limitations of radio, you bet it'll be revealing. That's tonight on Irrational Fear! host Dan Nillick and this is Irrational Fear, the show that's probably better off hosted by Bob Hawke. Let's face it, uh, he'd do a better job of most things, wouldn't he? Later on, I'll be meandering through the mountain of misogyny that was this week in news. But before that, please welcome our fear mongers for tonight. Lewis Hubber, Clive Palmer's laptop went missing. What happened next? Well, nothing yet, Dan, and that's why I think we need to be worried. Because there's nothing more dangerous than a Palmer in weight. Heath Franklin, do bigots need new slogans? Yes, that's why I've started my new slogans for Bogans initiative. You can find some literature on a public bus. <laughs> David Bluestein, what can we expect from our priests on Sunday? Uh, th- there's more to the super Jesus than Sarah McLeod. Okay, very good. Chris Taylor, when will we stop talking about the Labour leadership? Uh, well, not tonight. I've got nothing else to talk about but the Labour leadership. Uh, even if you'd asked me about priests or bumper stickers, I still would have only spoken about the Labour leadership. <laughs> and Nina Oyama, didn't Nigella Lawson have it coming? Well, I don't think so, but the choking, like, it really left a bad taste in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) A rational fear, declaring mission accomplished against Iraq way before the Socceroos. Your fear is rational. But first, what a week to be a man. Hey, guys, we've done it. We have successfully shown ourselves to be the unfairer sex. All over your face, women. Yeah! (laughs) 
and it feels so bad. Now, if you were unwittingly born with two X chromosomes, then give yourselves a congratulatory pat on the head, but not in a patronising way. I just want to make sure that's absolutely clear. Because we... Well done. Because we have all survived the Misogylips 2013. Yes. <laughs> Lips. Um, this week was seven days of women bashing from start to finish. Unfortunately, uh, not just figuratively. If you weren't in the country or you were too busy with your head in the pillow crying at the state of national discourse, uh, then here is a little recap of the seven days of misogyny too awful to miss, courtesy of Craig David. What, what? Read an offensive menu on a Monday Got told to shut up on public on a Tuesday Denigrated by the army on Wednesday Watch the footy show on TV on Thursday Howard Sadler disrespected on Friday The Piers Ackerman Saturday and Sunday Footballers charged for rape on a Monday Nigella Lawson choked on Tuesday And so on and so on Okay, don't, a week, don't a clap week of, <laughs> <laughs> a week of a week of uh, a week of misogyny is kind of putting it lightly. It was more like an extended festival of misogyny. So, uh, how did misogypalooza come about? I hear you asking. Well, uh, no one knows. It's a bit of a mystery. Um, some media pundits believe that men were provoked by Julia's blue tie jibe. When will you women learn? Never make fun of our cravats. <laughs> And, uh, look, like, my brain exploded this week. I want to believe that this kind of stuff doesn't happen, or at least in my crazy dream world, it's not as concentrated. You know, marginalisation of women should happen over decades, not days. It's just crazy. I think the most obvious explanation is that this is The Purge, uh, not too dissimilar to the feature film of the same name. This week, anyone could be as sexist as you like and get away with it, but not if you're a member of the Defence Force. In fact, the only reprieve from Misogypalooza was the astonishing performance by Lieutenant General David Morrison in a video addressing the denigrating actions of a group of male soldiers who call themselves the Jedi Council because that's probably the only way they can get some, by using the Force. Those who think that it is okay to behave in a way that demeans or exploits their colleagues have no place in this army. If that does not suit you, then get out. You may find another employer where your attitude and behaviour is acceptable, but I doubt it. Okay, so David Morrison clearly hasn't heard of 2GB, the NRL, or the Navy. Um, Really. The sad truth is that there are, there are still massive gaps when it comes to gender equality in Australia. Now, Nina Oyama, as the only woman on this panel, what are some of the major problems in equality that women are facing day to day? Well, look, there's just One a lot of One of the problems, Dan, is that women is for living later in life, you know? I mean, older women could be spending their final years in poverty. Currently, the average superannuation payout for women is a third of the payout for men. Well, that's really interesting, Nina. In, the, in relation, is that kind of like in relation to the earning power of women in general in Australia? Oh, definitely. Well, I, I really... think you'll find that while the gap is narrowing, it is still shockingly wide, Dan. On average, women earn 16% less than men. 16% is quite a divide. Now, what about the marginalisation of women's voices in media? Well, where do you see yourself on that spectrum, Nina? Well, look, as a female well, comedian... that's a funny thing, Dan. The representation of women in the media isn't a problem. They make up 55% of the journalists in Australia. However, it should be noted that women in media rarely reach senior levels of management in media jobs, and when they do, they get paid far less. Good point, Nina. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um... <laughs> Well, thanks, Nina. I think it's really good that we're having this conversation. Um, but I, I feel like we've still got some way to go. Do you have anything else to say? Yeah, I actually... Didn't think oh. so. Right. <laughs> when Jay-Z had his baby daughter, he came out and said, I'm never going to use the word bitch in my lyrics again. 
uh, because marrying Beyonce wasn't a good enough excuse. Uh, by comparison, his best friend Kanye West this week leaked his baby daughter and also gave birth to a mistake. Uh, he released his album, Jesus, And the lyrics are less than gentlemanly, as explored by Sarah Kanowski of Poetica, the Radio National Poetry Show. You're with Sarah Kanowski for Poetica on RN. Tonight we explore the dark, mysterious and often maligned brain of poet and self-proclaimed deity... Kanye West. His latest offering, Yeezus, has been labelled misogynistic. Here's a sample and you can decide for yourself. New slaves. They trying to lock niggas up. They trying to make new state. See that's that privately owned prison. Get your piece today. They probably all in the Hamptons, bragging about what they made. Fuck you and your Hampton house. I'll fuck your Hampton spouse. Come on her Hampton blouse and in her Hampton mouth. It's hard to know exactly what he means here. The ambiguity in his work is baffling. But many people believe that it's something about hating on bitches. Ladies and gentlemen, Lewis Hubbard! Thank you very much. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, Clive Palmer. Clive Palmer wants to be Prime Minister. That's not necessarily funny, but I've checked it, and technically it is a joke. (laughs) Clive Palmer is the living embodiment of the phrase, everything's bigger in Queensland. Oh, I mean his character. Don't be like that. But the really big story here is that Clive Palmer... Oh, we got there. Well done. (laughs) It was a fat joke. Because uh, <laughs> we didn't see that coming in the Clive Palmer <laughs> I thought I'd get it out of the way early. Uh, the really big story this week is that Clive Palmer says he was hacked. Yes, hacked. Although it turns out that Clive Palmer's idea of hacking actually means someone broke in and stole his laptop. That's hacking old school. <laughs> and the security breaches didn't end there. Faxes he'd been sending to his lawyers were also copied to a secret fax number. A secret fax number. I wonder if they were secretly being sent to 1991 when the last fax machine was used. (laughs) Yes, Clive's secret plans were hacked. And of course, Clive was disappointed. But his response to the theft was, Unfortunately, this kind of thing is the price you pay for living in a democracy. What do you reckon Clive thinks living in a democracy means? Because if he wants to be PM, it's not great that his understanding of a democracy is a place where your shit gets stolen. (laughs) He's confusing democracy with anarchy. What are your policies, Clive? Well, I'm for democracy, so I hope to disrupt the hierarchical system of governance, point my middle finger to the flag, and burn the corrupt halls of power to the ground. Vote Palmer! (laughs) But the really disturbing thing about the hacking is that Clive has secret information that he's concerned about the public hearing. This is a man who is very open about a wide variety of insane plans. If Clive Palmer is relaxed about telling you that he wants to build Titanic 2, can you even begin to imagine the kind of mental ideas he doesn't think you're ready to hear? The Hindenburg 2? A second Black Plague? Another series of Celebrity Splash? 
To understand how afraid we need to be of Clive's secrets, we need to have a look at the stuff he's totally happy to say out loud. Two of his projects outside of politics are building a kind of Jurassic Park and, as I mentioned, relaunching the Titanic. When most people watch Titanic or Jurassic Park, they recognise them as films about hubris and the dangers of megalomaniacal men going too far. No, not Clive. Rather than see the obvious similarities, Clive watches movies where everyone dies at the end and thinks, how can I recreate that terrific success? I have a lot of money. I want to invest it in a range of humorous disasters. Last week, Clive said he couldn't be corrupted because he was already too rich. Yeah. I think we can look to incorruptible billionaire rulers like Silvio Berlusconi and breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) Clive's political party was called Australia United Party, which made sense because he wanted to bring Australia together. But now it's changed to Palmer United Party, suggesting the goal of the party is to bring together all the individual pieces of Clive Palmer. Can you imagine if the Clive Palmer we see before us is in fact just one piece of the larger Clive Palmer? And when all the Palmers assemble, it will form some sort of super Palmer. It'd take three regular-sized Palmers just to make up the super Palmer's chin. Yeah, fat joke. Well done. Well earning. The last United Anything that Clive ran was the Gold Coast United soccer team, which went under in 2012. Paired with the Titanic, Clive does seem to have a thing for stuff that goes under. In fact, Clive has even endorsed an old Gold Coast United goalkeeper for the Senate, and he's promised to have even more high-profile candidates in the future. Even more high-profile than the goalkeeper of a bankrupt Gold Coast soccer team that played in a league that doesn't exist anymore? But how?! Clive's idea of celebrity is as exciting as the people who pick contestants on Celebrity Apprentice. It won't even be like watching Where Are They Now? It'll be like watching Who the Fuck Were They Ever? (laughs) So what else do we know about Clive? He invests heavily in nickel. Nickel, of course, can be used for a variety of things. Making stainless steel, if you add it to glass, it makes it go green. But it's also used to make coins. Clive Palmer is digging up his own money. Right out of the ground. All this time we were looking for a money tree... Turns out money grows more like a potato. So with all of that money and open craziness behind him, can you honestly take a second to imagine what the hell Clive Palmer is afraid might reach the public eye from his secret hacked computer? There's the chance that it's the craziest thing of all, not mind control or a nuclear holocaust, but sensible policy. Because some people say we shouldn't be too hard on Clive. After all, he was made a national living treasure in 2012. But before you get too carried away with the national treasure idea, that honour also belongs to Gay Waterhouse, breeder of horses and gambling enablers, as well as Rolf Harris. So it's not perfect. But as Clive Palmer's party saying goes, together we can achieve the extraordinary. And with national politics as it is right now, mediocrity would do. And I think it's good to set the bar low, because it's probably been a while since Clive's jumped over anything. So Clive Palmer is renowned for making big announcements. What's, uh, what's going to be his next big announcement, Heath? What do you reckon? Oh, I think he's going to reveal his next big celebrity is Kitty from Progressive Car Insurance Ads. You know, the ones who... <laughs> She's sort of top level celebrity you'd be going I, for. I actually, I actually suspect he's only called Palmer because he secretly loves being covered in cheese and ham. 
I also think that maybe he's getting Kitty put from aggressive car insurance ads because she makes cake appear in people's pockets. <laughs> Is, am I the only one who has no idea what he's talking about? <laughs> it's because you don't watch television. It's... No, that's true. <laughs> Can you download these ads? <laughs> Chris, what do you think? Look, I think Lewis is right. He's obviously got a, um, a real fetish for disasters. So I think next on the menu for Clive will be uh, rebuilding a replica of that uh, Ferris wheel in Melbourne. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean the Ferris wheel when it was briefly working for those two days. I mean just a replica of the shit fucked up one, side by side. So Melbourne's now got two completely useless things that everyone looks baffled by en route to the airport. He could expand it and just include the Docklands, which is equally as disastrous. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like a natural disaster, like it'll just create an earthquake. Maybe by jumping, actually. He's also talking about um, doing the Apollo 13 experience as well well as the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid experience, which I'm pretty sure they both ended okay. (laughs) Well, we asked the audience uh, what secrets are hidden on Clive Palmer's laptop, and uh, we've got a few here. Uh, I like this one. A receipt for a Prius is on Clive Palmer's laptop. Oh, do you know, while we're on the Prius, um, because you know how sometimes he goes around calling himself Professor? No. He does. He calls himself Professor. He's a, he was a defunct... He was given, like, an honorary professorship from, from Bond University. They've since taken it away. But he's also a professor in sustainability. <laughs> and he couldn't even sustain the title honorary professor. <laughs> I, think, I think his idea of sustainability is eating on the toilet, though. Isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's the cycle of life. <laughs> A rational fear, finishing when Parliament does, and just as popular. It's not rocket science. Ladies and gentlemen, Heath Franklin. Or should that be Professor Heath Franklin? G'day, how's it going? Is everyone enjoying themselves? Yeah. I'm going to see if I can turn this into sharp U-turn then. Uh, this is a little something I wrote called Honk If Your Descent Is Born Of A Desire For Something Better um, Basically I want to talk to you guys about a bumper sticker That I saw a while ago That I still haven't been able to reconcile with myself Emotionally um, And it's come on to sort of dominate my conscience To agree somewhere between uh, fanatical and diagnosable um, It's turned into this kind of long argument That I have in my head over and over again With a completely um, imaginary racist So... Now, as a general rule, I have a keen mistrust for anything that is expressed through the medium of the bumper sticker. Uh, Magic happens seems like a very naive thing to have written on a vehicle with a combustion engine. (laughs) If you uh, fill your petrol tank with the crude karma and unicorn tears, then tell me magic happens. I hunt and I vote. Amazing. What an amazing life balance you've achieved between your hobby and your occasional compulsory involvement in Australia's democratic processes. You're like some sort of sometimes hunting, sometimes voting, multitasking, super scheduling machine. You hunt and you vote? Well, I like pina coladas and doing my fucking BAS in the rain. Do you want to impress me? You want to impress me? Why don't you vote with your hunting rifle from across the street? You can shoot one box above the line or all the boxes below the line. (laughs) And if I ever met anyone with one of those fuck off, we're full bumper stickers, I would invite them to drive between Sydney and Perth and reassess their attitude to overcrowding in Australia. (laughs) Now, at this point, I will confess that I do have a bumper sticker on my car. It says, 
Sydney Swans, which is kind of related because I saw the bumper sticker that made my brain hurt somewhere around the time that Adam Goods was treated like shit twice in a week. I think it was after the young girl dehumanised him accidentally, but just before Eddie Maguire dehumanised him accidentally. <laughs> Long story short, Goods was awesome and transcendent, and I was driving around all fired up about how I thought Australia was going to hell, and I pulled up behind a car with a bumper sticker. Oh, yeah! <laughs> yeah, nice. I like your style, sir. <laughs> Uh, the sticker had a map of Australia, so alarm bells started ringing in my head already. And the text, love it or leave. And I was instantly so fucking angry. But like the best, most truly inspired brain explosions, I realised I had to stop and figure out why I was angry. Let's back it up a bit here, right? Maybe I'm being a dick for no reason at all. So let's rationalise this, huh? People say like it or leave all the time, and I've never minded that. But rarely is it in the context of a whole fucking country. Maybe love it or leave is just a business slogan and they work all around Australia. Probably not, because love it or leave is only really a good slogan for a divorce lawyer. <laughs> no, this guy is definitely a C-word, which is what I would have said if my son was in the car. No, I thought this person is definitely a nationalistic, hateful, casual racist. I still cannot be completely certain of this man or woman's interpretation of the sticker. So I decided to fill in some blanks, right? It was sort of very ambiguous, like some sort of hateful, neo-Nazi, cryptic, crossword clue. Or, you know, a sentence that is uh, pronounced properly. <laughs> anyway, I very quickly decided that they wore a flag as a cape, had a Southern Cross tattooed on their face, and wanted everyone who wasn't white to leave Australia. And then I second-guessed myself. You don't know these people, Heath. They may not have thought about it beyond having the word love and a flag of Australia on the same sticker. They could be inclusive and patriotic. And remember, Heath, if there's one thing you hate, it's when snooty, urbane people accuse all bogans of being racist. Because you think it's moronic when boho little hipster dudes use a sweeping generalisation to damn a group of people for making a sweeping generalisation. <laughs> no, screw that. Back your rage, Heath. This person is the Cronulla riding monster you have imagined them to be. They want me to love Australia or leave. They are the two options they are giving everyone. They have decided that they are sick of being chastised for treating non-whites as subhuman and all whingers have to go somewhere else. Love it or leave. I mean, what if I took the same approach to my marriage? What if in the middle of a particularly listless stroganoff, I just stood up and left? <laughs> what if all those homosexuals in New Zealand getting married finally started to undermine my marriage, as we have all been warned about? <laughs> and I don't love it anymore. I thought that if you loved something, you were supposed to work at it and fight for it and challenge it to become better and stronger. What if I looked at my son putting bread into the Blu-ray player with a crayon up his nose? <laughs> right? Decided I wasn't a fan of that and just left. <laughs> Shouldn't I explain to him that crayons don't belong in noses and that Blu-ray is an exciting new format for home theatre to be respected and not fed like a goat? <laughs> At the moment, Australia is on its way to an election between Jay Giller and Tabbitt, and I can safely say that neither of them represent me. We know that Hunty Vody Man is out there somewhere, eagerly awaiting his chance to vote. So, <laughs> should I leave him to it, or do I get to throw in my two cents worth? Side note, polls show that Australia wants Turnbull v Rudd, but we've got Jay Giller v Tabbitt. Don't you just love that? Well, you don't have a choice. And what about refugees? They haven't even had a chance to love it here. I assume that bumper sticker person doesn't like refugees. I mean, they want to love it here, but they don't even have the option of leaving because they haven't given them the option of arriving. What if they're here because they saw a sticker with a map of Afghanistan that said love it or leave and they decided they didn't want to get killed in the streets and came here? In fact, what if I decide I don't love it here and pack up my family on a boat to America, but they don't let me in? Now, all of a sudden, I realise that while I didn't think I loved it here, I certainly didn't hate it as much as being in an offshore processing centre while my child dies from dysentery. What then? Stick a man! 
What about Australia's obsession with OH&S? I had a 60-minute safety induction last week to an office. (laughs) The general vibe of it was death is still bad and not hurting yourself is still good. What is wrong with us that basic self-preservation skills need to be reinforced when we start a new job? Welcome to your first day. P.S. You haven't been absolved of your responsibility to keep your face out of the paper shredder. What about all the hate-filled, nationalistic wankers like this bumper sticker guy that keep ringing up radio stations to tell Adam Goods was overreacting when he was publicly vilified twice in a week during the Indigenous round of the AFL? Am I supposed to love the fact that for some reason in Australia the perpetrators of racism get to define their offence now? Like if someone glassed me in the face and when they were arrested they simply said, no, that wasn't a glassing to the face and that was the end of it? No, I think that glassing is a very Australian thing too, actually, now that I think about it, right? <laughs> Am I supposed to love that as well? Now, I've got, I do have the good fortune to spend a lot of time in New Zealand, so I know that Australia is great, but I have a lot of context of how much better we could be. But now, in the face of this ultimatum delivered by a sticker on a car, I feel like maybe I should take all the things I don't love about Australia and leave. Maybe the sticker is an ad for New Zealand, after all. Pack up my dislike for glassing, apathy-inducing politicians, the idea that Aussies are entitled to do a bit of racism every now and then, television that celebrates mediocrity, OHS laws designed for six-foot-tall toddlers, and jump back to the next boat out of here. In fact, now that I think about it, it's malignant hate-mongering bumper sticker jockeys like you that I really hate about Australia. And if I think about it some more, it seems like you're the one having a passive-aggressive whinge about the place. You brought this whole thing up with your silly little bumper sticker of discontent <laughs> your mat. So why don't you leave? Or do you love people who don't love it should leave? Doesn't that mean you don't love people who don't love it and don't leave, ergo therefore thusly giving you grounds to leave by your own logic? <laughs> Maybe I'm overacting and I'm probably definitely overthinking this. After all, I overthink things all the time. Like the time that guy cut me off in traffic and I went to abuse him and then when I pulled up next to him at the lights I noticed he was African and then spent two minutes deciding it would be racist not to tell him his driving sucks. (laughs) Maybe someone put this sticker on the person's car as a joke. The way I used to put Jesus stickers on all the hotted up mag wheel boy racer cars at the shops when I was a kid. Anyway, I'm still not sure who the asshole is in this fleeting hypothetical non-exchange, but the only outcome I have safely managed to reach is in the two minutes I sat behind this bumper sticker at the lights, I had applied more logic to the phrase, love it or leave, than this guy probably ever will. And he was the one who decided to let it represent him in traffic. But maybe, just maybe, in the same way America doesn't think it has a problem with guns, Australia's completely ignorant to how mainstream it's become to treat someone like shit because of where they come from, not what they have done or hope to do. Ladies and gentlemen, Heath Franklin! Great stuff, Heath. Now, if you guys were anti-population, what would be your bumper sticker? I, I like the idea of a bumper sticker that says, fuck off, I'm full. Because, <laughs> because I'm, I'm pro-immigration, but anti-cannibal. Or just one that says, like, have abortions. Lots of abortions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that too dark? Get it out of your system, <laughs> literally. A rational fear. Love it or complain to the ABC. Here on Poetry it's part two of Kanye West's Yeezus. Hold my liquor. Bitch, I'm back out my coma, waking up on your sofa. When I park my Range Rover, slightly scratch your Corolla. Okay, I smashed your Corolla. I'm hanging on a hangover. Five years we've been over. Ask me why I came over. One more hit and I can own ya. One more fuck and I can own ya. Kanye West. Sure, he says it best, eloquent if anything. Ladies and gentlemen, David Belushi! 
Friends, I'd like to talk to you tonight about a man. More than a man, he's a prophet, whose immortal message of love and sacrifice takes a good book and turns it into a shit film. That man, of course, is Zack Snyder. (laughs) Now, Zack Snyder has directed the new Superman film, Man of Steel. And don't worry about spoilers, I haven't actually seen it yet, although that's never actually stopped anyone criticising something on religious grounds before. Uh... (laughs) More importantly, I can't spoil Man of Steel because uh, based on what I'm about to tell you, it sounds like Zack Snyder already has. Uh, if the name Zack Snyder sounds vaguely familiar, that's because he made 300. You know, the, the peck-jiggling masterpiece that uh, <laughs> combined the sexual politics of Corey Bernardi uh, with the race relations of Hey Hey It's Saturday. <laughs> and had every NRA fan and his steroid-loving dog shouting, This is Sparta! before kicking an unsuspecting Iranian into a hole <laughs> called Guantanamo Bay. Now, this might surprise you, uh, but Man of Steel is an intentionally Christian film, right? This Superman film is about to come out. The script makes liberal use of Jesus imagery. It was even test screened to Christian pastors. And Warner Brothers uh, actually commissioned nine, nine pages of sermon briefing notes. This is totally true. Called Jesus, the original superhero. I'm pretty sure he's not. Like, uh, by the way, I used, to act, I, I used to work in a comic shop, and depending on your frame of reference, the original superhero is either Superman himself, Gilgamesh, or Captain Caveman. <laughs> These sermon notes are designed to help religious leaders talk to their congregations about the healing powers of a radical, muscular Jesus, while, and I quote, showing the Man of Steel trailer during their Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> because if there's one thing the church really needs to bring in the kids, it's pop-up ads. It's almost as if Warner Brothers went, you know that bit in the Bible where Jesus gets angry at the moneymakers in the temple and flips over all the tables? Let's base a whole movie on that moment and make money off it in the temple. <laughs> so in Zack Snyder's film, Superman's age is given as 33, the same, the same age as Jesus when he died at the end of the novel. Uh, And in this film, unlike the other Kryptonians who are cloned, Superman is the product of a miracle birth and is sent to Earth by his heavenly bearded father to be like a god to them, where he's sold out by the humans to the Kryptonians, all of whom seem to wear Roman-shaped helmets, despite the fact they're super-powered muscle men from outer space who can shoot laser beams from their eyes, making helmets completely redundant. (laughs) When he's cast down by General Zod, the bad guy, he puts his arms out in the shape of a crucifix, and although... He can't actually turn water into wine. His dad is played by Russell Crowe, who has turned a fair amount of it back into water. (laughs) Thanks to the magic of the renal system. (laughs) Oh, and the bad guy is a Kryptonian scientist who is really into evolution and climate change, but that's not important right now. It actually, it makes financial sense for Warner Brothers to chase the Christian dollar. Yeah, the Christian film industry is huge. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and and very lucrative. Significantly more lucrative than the Christian Slater film industry. (laughs) Uh, Whose uh, most recent film, Playback, uh, in 2012, grossed $264 in ticket sales. (laughs) Not $264,000. (laughs) $264. Making playback the most ironic title ever. That's, uh, that's about how much we gross, actually. That's, uh, <laughs> so I understand why Warner Brothers wants Superman to be Jesus, but I'm sorry, Christians, Superman is ours. Right? Superman is one of the holy books of my people. Uh, it's an immigrant fantasy by two American Jews about a dark-haired klutz in glasses with a Hebrew name, Kal-El, 
uh, who moves to America in 1939 to escape the destruction of his homeland. Right? This is a man with such bad allergies that his major weakness is kryptonite, which if he still lived on Krypton, would be literally everywhere. <laughs> a, man, a man who saves the day not by turning the other cheek, by punching the shit out of walls. And we all know what happens when muscular Christians start punching the shit out of walls. It isn't pretty and it's probably going to be our next Prime Minister. <laughs> Superman is not a Christian. You can't have him. And you don't need him because you already have so much. You know, you've got Mel Gibson. You've got a very Harold and Kumar Christmas. <laughs> you've got freaking Aslan, right? Including the bit in Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe where Santa Claus turns up to Narnia and gives the kids weapons, which I forgot was in the original book, but it is, right? Ho, ho, ho. What would you like for Christmas, eight-year-old Lucy? How about a dagger? <laughs> Santa has a little wet work job for you. So Warner Brothers, next time you're considering what you're going to do with Zack Snyder's enormous blue cock and that glittery Christian dollar winks at you between the labial curtains of the cinema screen, <laughs> ask yourself, what would Superman do? Yeah. Dave Blustein! A, a, a rational fear. Now, corrupting your local priest to spread your own message is a very clever tactic from the movie studios, but is it OK, uh, Lewis Hover? It is okay. I wish more independent studios were doing it. I would have loved to have seen, like, train spotting or something. Just, like, a priest up there going, choose heroin! <laughs> a rational fear. Now only more slightly secular than Iran. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Taylor! Thank you, Dan. Now, uh, this week, Julia Gillard reached a critical milestone in the polls, becoming the first Prime Minister in our history to record a lower approval rating than the Sydney monorail. <laughs> and that is pretty fucking low. I like the monorail. Pollsters say that if the downward slide continues, she could soon be sitting at Jar Jar Binks' level of disapproval, <laughs> which I don't need to tell you is pretty terminal. And so the Labour leadership question is once again in play. Gillard's clinging on for now because she still has the support of the Catholic Labour right. But come on, even the Pope stepped down this year and he had the backing of the entire Catholic Church. And he was a Nazi. I mean, those guys don't relinquish power that easily. <laughs> Some say Gillard won't quit because it'll send the wrong message to young feminist women. But I don't know about that. Maybe Gillard could follow the brave lead of Sunrise's Melissa Doyle, who showed this morning that it can be OK for ineffectual, mediocre women to quit their jobs. <laughs> it is misogyny week. <laughs> You've got four hours left for the purge. Uh... So the real question is, who will take over as PM if Gillard goes? And so this afternoon, to get the latest odds... I logged on to Tom Waterhouse's website, <laughs> which is not an experience I recommend. There's, it's amazing. There's actually even ads for TomWaterhouse.com on his own website. And... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but he is actually... Um, Tom is running a book on the Labour leadership. So I thought I'd run you through the form guide of the various candidates tonight. Now, at even money to take over is Kevin Rudd. Rudd swears he's not campaigning for the top job. He swore that this week while campaigning in Geelong, while campaigning in Brisbane, while campaigning in Gladstone. In fact, the only person who popped up in more shopping centres this week was Curtis Stone during the ad breaks on MasterChef. 
Run, run, I think, is very much the Princess Diana of politics. Adored by the public, but to those in the know, a nutcase narcissistic car wreck waiting to happen. (laughs) Next at five to one, we have Bill Shorten, a man who must wonder how many more episodes of Q&A he has to go on before people stop referring to him as a faceless man. There's no doubt in Shorten's ambition. This is the guy so attracted to power that he married the daughter of the Governor-General, but only because the Governor-General herself was already taken. (laughs) True story. Now, as one of uh, Labor's key power brokers and plotters, there is a certain concern that if Shorten becomes Prime Minister, he may, by force of habit, try to organise a coup against himself. (laughs) All right, at eight to one, we have Penny Wong. Now... Who likes Penny Wong? I, yeah, I genuinely do like Penny Wong, and personally, I'd love to, for her to be our next PM, if only to see the look on Pauline Hanson's face <laughs> when Australia gets our first Asian lesbian Prime Minister. <laughs> Can you imagine the talk back that day? Howard Sattler could finally ask the Prime Minister if her partner's gay, and it wouldn't be that inappropriate. <laughs> At 15 to 1, looking outside the square, Wendy Deng. Now, <laughs> I actually think Wendy Deng would make a great politician. She's, um, she's certainly had a lot of practice pretending to look concerned at parliamentary inquiries. And who better to oversee our resources boom than the world's biggest gold digger? <laughs> Welcome back to Misogyny Week. <laughs> at 40 to 1, it's the Dalai Lama. Seriously, he spends so much time in Australia these days, he may as well be our Prime Minister. And by failing to find any of Karl Stefanovic's jokes funny, he already has a great deal in common with most Australians. (laughs) And at 100 to 1, but shortening by the day, it's black caviar. (laughs) (laughs) Hear me out on this. It's, it's, It's not actually as crazy as it sounds. 100 to 1? She occupies a unique place in this country because she's the one female in Australia that no one seems to have a problem with. Seriously, she's the only woman that even rugby league players can respect. Sure, she has... Sure, she has political limitations. Being black won't play well in Western Sydney. And her inability to talk could potentially be a problem in TV interviews, although it hasn't held Tony Abbott back. But at the end of the day, her habit of leaving a constant trail of shit behind everywhere she goes, I believe, makes her absolutely perfect for the modern Labour Party. Chris Taylor! Telling it how it could be. (laughs) Uh, Who do you think would make a good Prime Minister? Heath Franklin? Uh, I think at this point, Australia would probably prefer a broom in a hat. Dame Edna, because that's like a man doing a woman's job. <laughs> Irrational fear. Now with more viewers than MasterChef. Irrational fear. Behavioural experts are stunned. Parents and police want answers, and three teenage girls may have ruined their reputations forever. Ladies and gentlemen, Nina Oyama. <laughs> Finally allowed to talk. Yes. <laughs> Right. Look, I have a confession to make. Um, I don't want to sound like a hipster here, but I was fantasizing about choking Nigella Lawson way before Charles Saatchi. <laughs> like, Charles Saatchi made choking Nigella uncool and mainstream. You know, he's just a pathetic follower in the popular trend that was misogyny. 
No, seriously, seriously. No, but what he did was horrible and inexcusable. My Nigella Lawson choke fantasy was much more vanilla, which is also Nigella's favourite type of ice cream. <laughs> there was no throttling and no tears, except for maybe my own. In this fantasy, I grab her low-cut cardigan and I pull it up to her collarbone. Not, like, in an aggressive way, just to cover her cleavage. <laughs> you know? Because I wouldn't want anyone mistaking this for some girl-on-girl action. <laughs> Then I'd shake her and I would lecture her like a concerned mother, which is kind of weird since I'm 19 and young enough to be a daughter. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, I'd lecture her like I was her mother, a concerned mother who is sick and confused by her 43-year-old daughter making a career out of the Venn diagram space between cooking and softcore porn. <laughs> yeah. I'd grab her and I'd say, you don't have to do this, Nigella. It's going too far. You are not a master chef. You are a mistress chef. You make bedroom eyes in the kitchen and stop deep-throating the silverware. No more talking about how much you love massive, super saucy sausages. Your penchant for alliteration, once cute and nerdy, is making me feel very uncomfortable. And I know misogynist menus seem to be topical right now, so why do you have a recipe for something called slot spaghetti? Like, what's that about? She does. She does. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I was lying. The thing is, no matter how infuriating and weirdly hypersexual Nigella Lawson is, you're not allowed to choke her, which kind of sucks. But uh, (laughs) after the Saatchi incident, fantasizing it is probably not the greatest idea either, which is why I've devised a four-step program to help you stop wanting to choke Nigella. You ready? Take notes. Step one, admit that you have a problem. I have a problem. Step two, think of reasons to choke Nigella and then prevent those thoughts before they happen. For example, if you want to choke her because watching one episode of Nigella's Kitchen can satisfy your husband better than you can, then all you have to do is go to Rebel Sport, buy a baseball bat, come home to your husband, and then smash the TV! (laughs) Smash the computer and smash anything that can play Nigella's Kitchen. Um, Now, step three, compare yourself to Charles Saatchi and know that you never want to be like him. He grew up in the Mad Men era, which uh, you older folks probably refer to as the 60s, but... But uh, HBO clearly depicts this era as a very misogynistic period where domestic violence was really commonplace. Plus, Saji has a book called Be the Worst You Can Be. Like, it's called Be the Worst You Can Be. Life is too short for patience and virtue. Like, he's just a horrible person. (laughs) And then on top of that, he considers throttling his wife a playful tiff, which would be kind of cool if he could go back in time and, you know, change the name of the Boston Strangler to, like, the the Boston Playful Tiffer. Like, like if you went back to, like, a prison and it's like, oh, how many years you got for doing whatever you did? And he's like, oh, yeah, I was just, you know, I playfully tiffed someone to death. (laughs) But no, it's in the context of domestic violence, so it's not so cute. Step four, channel your Nigella rage into other activities. Popular activities include, imagine choking another celebrity chef. Uh, I suggest Gordon Ramsay, very hateable. (laughs) And if all else fails, you can just masturbate furiously. (laughs) Alternatively, disregard all steps and see a therapist. And if you can't afford therapy, then get on stage and talk about it on Radio National. Thanks, guys. Nina! Really hates Nigella Lawson. She just annoys me, man. Like, <laughs> it's like do porn or do cooking. Like yeah. uh, make a choice. Pick one, man. Tell Matt Preston there's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> a rational fear. Now with less kids than Manus Island. Surely leaves nothing to the imagination. Here's our final instalment. I'm in it. A black girl sipping white wine. Put my fist in her like a civil rights sign. 
and grabbed it with a slight grind and held it till the right time. Then she came like, ah. Thank you, Kanye. I think we've all been there before. When our next guest was a 17-year-old punk, she found herself hungry one day and decided to start stripping as a way to make ends meet. What was meant to last two weeks lasted more than two decades, and she got so good at it, she became the world burlesque champion three times in a row. But now she's got a reason to hang up those tassels. Please welcome Imogen Kelly! Now, Imogen, welcome to the show. Welcome to Rational Fear. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for coming and uh, joining in this uh, this crazy caravan of fun. Yeah, it's been great fun. Now, for people who don't know what burlesque is, what 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 is the art form? How do you how would you describe it? Well, it depends on who you're watching, really. Um, for me, it's it's uh, satirical comedy. Uh, it's it's a feminist performance art form. For me, it's a about a, an expression of sensuality, which when I started was completely taboo in society. Uh, but for many women performing it, it's just it's just about getting up and. Um, I don't know, challenging ideas of the body beautiful. Um, these are often women that aren't allowed to feel beautiful in their lives, so they, they uh, take the stages. They're usually women that don't fit in. Well, and boys, a lot of boys joining us now too. So. I hear what you're saying. It's, it's stripping, isn't it? That's, yeah, a, that's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Think, no, um, it's artistic stripping, Burlesque darling. is a little bit like Nigella, except at the end of it, you've ruined the cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually do an act with a cake, which I'm sure Nigella would love. Now, how did you come about in, how did you kind of land into the burlesque world? How did you kind of get in, into that world? Oh, gosh, it just, it just sort of sprung up out of nowhere. It just sort of bubbled up. But meanwhile, myself and a group of other feminist performance artists who've been going for, we've been going for a long time. And then we, I don't know, we just got absorbed into the world of burlesque. One of, uh, I was hanging out with a friend of mine yesterday and he was telling me that you, the reason why you are the best in the world at burlesque is that you tell a story. When you do your art, when you do your art form, whereas a lot of the other girls, for them, it's just getting their gear off. But he, he was, he was just like, she. That's the reason why she's the best. Not many people go to that effort to actually tell a story. No, well, it was, it was actually, it was quite a while ago. I realised I can say anything I want with this art form. It's, it's because people, if if you give it that light, humorous touch, you can get away with anything. I've re, I've reenacted Lady Diana's car crash. I've like, been <laughs> that didn't uh, get Jackie a good laugh Kennedy. So and, you and Chris Taylor have a lot in common. Um. <laughs> you know, and and people, you know, okay, I get a, a couple of very successful walkouts when I do that kind of stuff, and I always, I think that's an achievement. Um, but but generally, people really love it because you're, you're saying something that needs to be said. Which part of the body is Lady Di when you reenact that? <laughs> uh. Yeah, <laughs> all of me. The whole, yeah. All of me. Yeah. I, who do I do? When I do Liza Minnelli, there's a bit, you know, it's, it's a very explicit act. <laughs> is it? Yes, it is. I do uh, Don't Cry out, li- out Loud, but I was pregnant when I was doing that act. And it was uh, my labia that does was singing un- it. Does your unborn child get royalties or, or a cut of the door? <laughs> Just don't let her hear that. Okay? <laughs> I don't want her getting to 21 and go, okay, mum, time to pay up. <laughs> You've just come back from overseas. Why were you overseas? Um, I went back to Las Vegas to give my crown to the next queen. Every year in Las Vegas, they uh, they have the competition and they crown the next reigning queen of burlesque. 
And it's, it's the old girls and uh, former queens that will be judging you. So you know you're up there in front of the real deal old school strippers and uh, they're hard to impress. What's it like kind of passing that crown to someone new? What's, what's that feeling? For me, it was a relief. I was really ready to give it to somebody else. And it's such a great opportunity to, to give somebody. And that, that we actually have a queen of burlesque in the world is, is something great because it's something the whole industry, which is generally, it is women, as I've said, it's someone to look up to, to aspire to being, but also... The entertainment industry doesn't yet celebrate burlesque as a proper art form. This is the thing about the burlesque industry is that we celebrate women that don't belong and that includes women that are oversized, it includes women that, for instance, might not be white or um, transsexuals or you, you name it. And, yeah, the 80-year-olds, we just scream the house down for those and, women. And oversized women too, so yeah. if mining doesn't work out for Gina Reinhardt. <laughs> right, right. But you're about to head through an extremely interesting period. Um, tell me about the history of cancer in your family. Um, yes, yeah, so my family, I'm the third generation of women uh, to be dealing with uh, breast cancer. My mother was the first to die of it and she was only 38 and that was in 1981. And then my, I discovered my grandmother had had it only by because I was hanging up her laundry on the line and um, I saw her bra and it had that little pocket that women, before we could do reconstructions, they had a little prosthetic boob they could stick in there. It was like a little sandbag. And I went, ah, oh, my grandmother's had it. And that's when I realised, oh, this is, this is going to be a problem for me one day. And then shortly after that, my maternal aunt also died at the age of 42. And my grandmother had had it at 55. So, you know, she lived to be an old woman, but the rest of us don't live very long in my family. Wow. Mm. And so you're about to, in, at the end of next <clears> month, <throat> you're about to go through a double mastectomy. Mm. Um, have you been tested? Like, why is, is this, why are you going to be going through that, that process? Um, I made the decision very early on. Actually, when I found my grandmother's bra, I went, I'm not just grown tits, so I was pretty, I was pretty horrified. I was like, oh no, this, these things are going to kill me. How old were you then? I was 14. Wow. So I'd, I'd probably, uh, I don't know, maybe it has a lot to do with why I flash them all the time. I was like, get it while you can, folks. I'm not going to be around for a little bit of time only. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, I made the decision then and I, I've waited and waited and waited for a better option to be available than a double mastectomy. I'm 41 now. A triple mastectomy would be really... Yeah, well, that would be spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> but, man, if I had triple, I would not be stripping in Vegas. I'd be like, celebrity. <laughs> anyway, um, but... I've made a lot more money than I have. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But, yeah, the, the mastectomy is still the best option for me. And even though my aunt had the genetic testing, I became very suspect about the research companies at that point because they wouldn't test me unless I had cancer. So they're all sort of waiting for me to get cancer before they'd test me. And That's then I crazy. It was really awful interview to sit through and to go, please, 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 almost begging. Uh, as you know, at this point, I was in my twenties, and they were like, no. Even no. when you explained the level of cancer was in your, in your family, yeah. family history and everything? They were incredibly apologetic at the time, but they just said, we can't test you until you've got cancer because it's, no it's no use to us. Then they realised they can patent the genes. And so they realised, oh, we can make a lot of money out of this genetic testing thing. And then I started getting stalked by genetic testing companies <laughs> who were like, we want your genes. We want your lives. It's like, no, my aunt has been tested mm -hmm. and we don't have BRCA1, BRCA2. Hence, they're interested in me because... Now I think there's about five more genes they've found that can leave you with a predisposition to have cancer. And that could mean there's a number of things that come into play that it, 
might be environmental in the development of cancers. It doesn't mean you're definitely going to get it because you've got these genes. But I just went, I've run out of time, folks. I can't wait till you release this information to the public. It's such a big decision to make when you know you know for certain you don't have bracket one and bracket two. Many people would think that's a decision made with a heart, not with a head. How do you kind of reconcile that? Not at all. I mean, there was a time when we thought the world was flat. I mean, it's sort of like we only know as much as we know now. And as I said, we're making new discoveries all the time. Uh, And I have waited a long time for those discoveries and I've held on because this is going to affect my whole career. I'm a circus performer. I won't be able to do that anymore. Your job is to get your tits out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, I love my tits. My tits have breastfed my child. I'm very attached to them. I've spent 27 years thinking about it and how am I going to deal with this and what options do I have? And I really don't have that many. You know, I can sit around and wait, but I've done that and I just had a lumpectomy like two months ago that is, you know, it's like, well, I might just do the whole thing and then I don't have to keep going through this process. So what are your plans post-surgery? What's your... um What's the, what's the big plan for Imogen Kelly? Um, I don't know. I'll see how I feel about my body after the surgery and if I feel like... I, still, I will still perform, but whether I continue with burlesque is another question because I do do other genres of performance. And, uh, you know, burlesque, as I've said, it's great, but it's limited. Um, and I think I'd be quite happy to go back to making films or acting or making theatre or any of those things. There's a lot of options. It's not like... I'm a one-trick pony. Yeah, then you can play boys as well. Yeah, I was, I was actually thinking, I had a plan A, B, C, D. If I you know, kept both breasts and I get, you know, this um, reconstruction is successful, then maybe I'll go back to burlesque. If I lose one tit, I could do sideshow um, <laughs> because I've done lots of sideshow. Literally. And then I, yeah, and then if I lose both tits, I can do boy drag because I'll do a lot of boy drag as well. So it's, like, it's not like... <laughs> My career hasn't got options. I think you should invest in like a Velcro option. Oh, I hate <laughs> a little bit of everything. Oh, look, they, they used to have these implants, and I don't know if they were a myth. In the nineties, you know, when implants went crazy, and all these women were getting like huge tits, and they had these ones that apparently you could blow up. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting because they, they had blow up penises, and also you know, like transsexuals were getting these inflatable penises, and also there was like everyone was like inflatables. Obviously, it didn't go very far. I'm going to be thinking about that next time on an aeroplane during the safety demonstration. <laughs> Could they use helium and the woman just floats towards the ceiling? During now the- there's an act. <laughs> just don't get too close to the light. <laughs> Imogen, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story with us. Please thank Imogen Kelly. Thank you. Now before we say goodbye, we want to leave you with what you should be scared about next week. Here is Nina Oyama with the top three fearsome fears. Jennifer Lopez signs on for a feature film about the Chilean mine disaster. Finally, she'll be able to prove that she's still Jenny under a rock. (laughs) Following his divorce, Rupert Murdoch asked for privacy, saying, the last thing I'd want to see is an exploitative media intruding into someone's personal lives. (laughs) And after appearing in an ad for Cricket Australia, John Howard will go on to appear to be an ad for P&O, which stands for Putting Kids Overboard. A rational beer is produced for Radio National by Dan Ewing, Nina Rixair and TJ Tomlout. This episode is written by Cena Anderson, K. Smith, James Colley, Mark Humphries, Cameron James, Robert Howie, Andrew Goat, Dylan B, and Alex Gavin. You and I live with Ben O'Brien, Nimbretani, Nino Yama, Hannah Riley, John Lee, Jess Wimbley. Please thank our panel, Nina, Lewis, Chris, Pete, David, Nimbridge and Kelly. Please thank Mark Don, Matt Murado, Darren Sanders, Lathrite, Senior Zen and our boss, Tony McGregor. Follow us at Rational Fear on 
social media. Till next week, remember, there's always something to be scared of! Irrational fear! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.